We're going to, uh, this week and next week, we're going to wrap up our, our series in the Gospel of Matthew. Hold your applause, please. Um, and so today, we are scheduled in the, throughout chapter 27, uh, which is Matthew's narrative about the death of Jesus. So on Monday, not Saturday like last week when I started writing the sermon, but on Monday when I started writing. Now, I finished this one last night at 9.30, but I started it on Monday, okay? Um, and I, I began to work through the text and think through its meaning. I, in my mind, I kept coming back to a different text that explains its meaning. So Matthew tells you the story, and he implies the meaning. In fact, he doesn't even give you just a ton of details because he wants you to think about the meaning. Um, but I, my mind, I just kept going right back to this just this core central text that explains the meaning, why it happened, and, uh, and what its implications are for all of us that we've been singing about all morning. And so it is with great irony that I tell you, instead of turning to Matthew 27, I would like for you to turn in your Bibles to Romans 3. Okay, Romans 3, verse 20 through 26 today. This is the Bible's core text for explaining the death of Jesus and its implications for you and for me. Romans 3.20, I'm going to read the text with you. Let's read together. Paul says this, Romans 3.20, For no one will be justified in his sight, comes through the law. But now, apart from the law, The righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, since there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God presented him as the mercy seat by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and justify the one who has faith in Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay. So I want to show you four things from this text about the meaning of the cross uh, for, for us. And the first thing that I want you to see is in verses 20 through 22, and that is this, that the death of Jesus on the cross is the single most pivotal moment in all of history, which is a really profound statement. Okay? It's a bold claim. You look at all of history, beyond, and until his coming, what happened in Palestine backwaters in an obscure area, a a man who would have otherwise been dismissed. It was actually the most pivotal moment in all of history. Look at verse 20. Paul says this. No one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. And then circle the words, but now. 
but now. There's the shift. Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed. It's been attested to by the law and the prophets. So the common assumption of Jewish leaders and Jewish people, it was a false assumption, which Paul comes to in Romans 4, but the common assumption at the time was that the process by which God acted to put people into a right relationship with himself was through their ability to keep the law of Moses. That the righteousness of God, God, the, the process that God had put in place in order for you to have or possess his righteousness was by keeping the law of Moses. It's like when, when, when Trey and his buddies this past March, he, he and his two or three friends got in the car and they drove from Birmingham and they drove north east into like Murphy, North Carolina kind of area, and then they're going to go over to the western mountains of North Carolina and do some hiking. And on the way there that night, Trey was going 65 in a 45 because it was one of those things where you're going the right speed and you don't realize that you're going into a town because it's so sparse, but the sheriff's department knows that you're going through a town. And they've got a speed trap there for that very reason. And so even though it was dark and no traffic, it was a totally safe driving experience. It was not one that the sheriff's department was particularly excited to be Trey to have. And Trey got a ticket. And until that moment, Trey had been in a right relationship with the sheriff's department outside Murphy, North Carolina, until he started going too fast. And then he was not in a right relationship with the sheriff's department. That same thing, that's that same mentality, that same understanding, that same principle, that was the operating assumption of Judaism. That you were accepted by God to the extent that you kept the law. That was the, that was the mode, that was the thought. And the problem, as Paul points out, is that any honest person will tell you that actually pulling that off is impossible. Paul says in verse 20, the main thing you get when you try to earn right standing with God through your own works, is just how bad you are at doing that. The knowledge of sin is what comes through the keeping of the law, through the reading of the law. That's what you get is just knowledge of your sin problem. The more you try to earn God's favor through obedience, the more you recognize just how impossible that task is. Which is why Paul says in verse 21, but now, now that Jesus has come, now that Jesus has lived, now that he has died, now that he has resurrected, now that he's ascended, we now know in full what the law and the prophets were pointing to or attesting to the entire time in their existence, right? So for centuries, the promise of Jesus was made, but in the crucifixion, the promise was actually kept. It's the most pivotal moment in all of history, right? So no wonder, if you go back, to just to give you a little bit of Matthew 27, no wonder when Jesus was dying on the cross, darkness came over the land. No wonder that the, the, the uh, curtain in the inner sanctuary ripped in two at his death. No wonder that tombs opened and dead people started walking around because it was the most pivotal moment in all of history and it had taken taken place. So Paul wants you to know that at the moment of the crucifixion, history turned on a dime. The second thing Paul wants us to know comes from verses 22 and 23. 
because of the cross, we know fully that the exclusive means by which God acted to put any person into a right relationship with himself is through faith in Jesus. Let me say that again. Because that's a mouthful. <laughs> we know, because of the cross, that the exclusive means by which God acted to put anybody in a right relationship with Him is through faith in Jesus. Look at verse 22-23. The righteousness of God, and, and by that Paul means the means by which God acted to put any person into a right relationship with Himself. That's what that means. The righteousness of God is through faith in Christ, since there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So I think I've, I've used this illustration before. Um, but, um, so I had this, this friend of mine. So when, when I moved into my freshman dorm at, at Furman, um, there were several musicians. Remember, I was going to major in music, Right. So I surrounded myself with people who were actually good at music. And even in my dorm, because it's a liberal arts school, I had musicians everywhere. There's a cello player over here who had the nastiest smelling feet of any person on the planet. He would take his shoes off to play cello, and then he would wonder why the whole hall smelled like old cheese. You know, it's like, Kevin, it's you, man. He's, it's just vile. It's because it's, it's your feet. Put your shoes on. Anyway, so he was, he was an amazing cello player, if you could get close enough to listen to him. And then... And then Jim was a guitar player, and his roommate Joe was a rap artist, a really good rap artist. And, and, then, and on down the line, I, I could go, and down at the end of the hall was, was Fayette. And Fayette was a truly remarkable guitar player, like truly remarkable. And between Jim and Fayette, I got inspired. And, and because I was failing miserably music, I wanted to do something, right? So I got inspired to play the guitar by those guys, so much so that when I went home that summer, I, I, I bought a cheap Alvarez guitar, Sam, an Alvarez, okay? It was, it was a $100 variety. I assure you it was not. No, 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 no. I mean, I could have gotten it at Sears. It was not great. So, like, and so, but I learned, like, I bled all summer, right? I got the extra light strings to make it easy, but also dig into your thing. Like, because they were quite good at guitar, quite good, I was inspired to try and learn it myself. But Faye had also told me that there are guitar players who are so good, and you see them, and you just want to throw yours away. Right? You just want to throw yours away. So I want you to think about the life that, that Jesus led. And I want you to think about his death on, on the cross. Paul says... The righteousness of God, that is, the, the means by which God has acted to put you into a right relationship with himself, is through faith in Jesus. Which is to say, Jesus was not an example, or merely an example, that you follow. In other words, Jesus did not live this life and do what he did so that you would go, oh. He actually did it. And if he actually did it, I can do it. And so I'm going to get in there, and I'm going to be just as awesome as Jesus was, which is really saying that Jesus is an example that motivates and inspires you for you to do it yourself, which is really putting faith in yourself and looking for him for inspiration. Inspiration. Looking to Jesus for inspiration is not the same as looking to him for faith. in faith. Paul says, that he did what he did for you to put your faith in him 
in Him. Jesus did not live a perfect life as an example to motivate us to do just as well as He did. Faith in Jesus is not belief in His example that inspires us to do the same. It's a belief that He alone lived the perfect obedience and that without it, we're toast. We're toast. Except Jesus. Right? And falling short is not just, probably not just what you think. Okay? It's not like we all hear of the glory of God and we, we read His law and we think that it's amazing and we give it our best shot and we fall short. Okay? Get God to accept a different standard. Like, God, I, I hear your standard. I see where you're coming from. Here's a different standard. It's pretty good. I can keep it. Will you accept me on these three terms? Doing that is falling short of the glory of God. It's just doing it in a way that we can be comfortable with, which is really terrifying. Either the children or another human being has been cutting our yard for the last, I don't know, three years? Except for yesterday. Because he was out of town and the kids were gone and we got people coming to, you know, open house today and it had to be cut. And it took me an hour and a half to do what takes that guy 20 minutes to do. And I'm sore. I'm literally sore from cutting the lawn yesterday. And it's not, it's like a tenth of an acre. I mean, this was not, anyway, it's embarrassing. Um, I'm falling short in a lot of ways physically, uh, as if you couldn't tell. All right, so... So, but the, the joke is between Holly and I, we, and I say it's a joke. First it was an argument, now it's a joke, right? <laughs> but, but for the longest time, Holly would be like, will you, edge, will you edge the yard? Like, I can mow a lawn, right? But can you edge along the sidewalk and make it look nice? And, so, and what Holly means is not like edge it. She means I want a one-inch divot all the way down the sidewalk, you know, that wide, that deep, all the way down, and I want you to do it with insufficient tools. And so, which is... <laughs> Which is really my way of saying I'm inadequate when it comes to using a weed eater. All right? So, so that, so, and, and, I, and what is my response to that? No. I don't think that's important. I don't think the divot between the sidewalk and the grass is really that important. Until we got a letter from the HOA in our last house saying, no, it's important. And here's a $50 fine, you know, for not mowing your... I said, by golly, I'm going to meet my wife's standard. I'm going to do it. I am not going to fall short. And I was knocking it out. And I got to the last 15 feet and I ran out of twine. (laughs) I fell short. I didn't want to fall short. Even when we don't want to fall short, we fall short. It's not about our attitude. It's about reality. Right? And that's why we need Jesus. Even if we have the best of intentions of not falling short, we all fall short. Even if we give God an alternate standard that we can keep, that standard falls short. And when we're in total rebellion, that's falling short too. So Paul says we need Jesus. We need faith in Jesus. We need belief that He alone is the perfect obedience to the Father. And without it, we're toast. That's why we need the cross. That's why we need the cross. So how does this work? How does Jesus, living that life and dying on the cross, what's, what are the inner workings of that? I want to, that's the third thing I want to share with you. I want to take you behind the scenes. We're going to get theological for a second. How does Jesus' death on the cross and our belief 
how does that actually result in God being okay with us? Okay? Look at verse 24 and 25. They are, and I want you to under, we got a lot of metaphors, lots of metaphors, okay? They are justified, there's one, freely by His grace through the redemption, there's another metaphor, that is in Christ Jesus. God presented Him as the mercy seat by His blood through faith. And I want you to underline mercy seat. It's not a metaphor. That's a theological thing I'm going to come to in just a, a little bit here. Okay. So Paul uses two metaphors to help us get at how Jesus' death on the cross results in possessing God's righteousness. Now, they're metaphors. Okay. So those of you that love teasing out metaphors all the way to the end to make sure they're accurate, you're going to be sorely disappointed. Okay. They don't say anything and everything, and they're not perfect all the way. They're just meant to get at a point okay, about, about, thing, um, about what Paul's trying to, to communicate. So look at verse 24. Paul says, how does this work? Okay, with Jesus' life and death on the cross, you and people who believe are justified freely by his grace. That is a legal term. So I don't know if we have any attorneys in the house, but this is the one place where I could like make a great lawyer joke and you'd be okay with it because this is Jesus' way of talking about how is it, this is amazing. Okay, So imagine yourself in a courtroom and because all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God, you know full well that you are guilty of whatever charge is being leveraged against you, whatever is being brought against you. And you're standing before the judge, and he says, Rob, I see that you have done X, Y, Z, blah, 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 and you're not guilty. And because I've declared you not guilty, you are not guilty. Now, why in the, that is that, in that moment, that's called justification. Why? What is going on in that courtroom that makes me not guilty when I really am guilty? Because the judge in that moment sees Jesus' perfect life and counts it toward my behalf. So the judge says, because Jesus has done it, even when you didn't, and you're trusting in him for his goodness, not in your own, I declare you legally in the court of law, you're not guilty. You're not guilty. You're justified. You are declared in a court of law to be right before the judge. Not because you didn't do it, but because you did do it, you recognized it, and you trusted in the one who actually accomplished the law on your behalf to be good for you. And because you trusted in him, I declare you not guilty. And then Paul says, through the redemption. This is is, uh, ransom language. This is you're a slave and the only way you're going to get freedom in Jesus' culture is if someone buys your freedom. This is why Paul would use this, uh, uh, this metaphor later in Romans 6, talking about being a slave to sin. And Jesus paid the price. He bought you out of the life of sin into a life of the Spirit. It's redemption language. He, he paid for you to be out. We would, um, at, at one of the church I, I pastored, we would do a fall festival. And one of the things that we do, because we had a... Uh, the head of our first impressions team and greeting our greeting our people on Sunday morning was a uh, was worked in the sheriff's department. You know, buzz cut the whole the, you know high and tight all the way. You know, big soft gentle teddy bear guy could break you in half. You know that kind of guy, right? And um, and so he brought a jail like a portable jail, 
and he would put it on outside the property, and we'd have this big fall festival outside, and if someone uh, paid an X number of dollars, which we were raising for missions, you could put anybody in jail. But to get them out, you had to pay that and more. So if you got arrested for $10, you weren't getting out of that jail until somebody redeemed you and paid the price to get you out. Now, can you imagine the price that a holy God would require for a sinful man? What would it require? Well, let me tell you. It's right here in verse 25. God presented him as the mercy seat by his blood. What God did in Jesus and his death actually atoned for our sin. It actually atoned for our sin. So the word mercy seat is a reference to the Old Testament. Quote, mercy seat. Okay? This is the cover over the ark where, if you go back to read Leviticus 16 to get into the real nitty-gritty, okay? But this is where Yahweh would appear. And on this cover over the ark, sacrificial blood of a spotless lamb would be poured on top by a one priest, one priest, uh, he would take the, the blood and he'd go inside the Holy of Holies where, this, where the ark was and the, and the covering on top. He would take the blood of the spotless lamb and pour it on there once a year okay, as a means of atoning for the sin of the people. Once a year. Once a year he would do this. Okay? And that would, quote, make atonement. Okay? So in the Old Testament and Jewish tradition, where that took place, that just became known as the mercy seat. Right? It came as a term to be applied generally to the place of atonement. It's, the mercy seat is the place where the atonement took place. So it was there in the Holy of Holies. That place was the focal point for God's provision of atonement for his people. And look what Paul says. Paul says, God presented Jesus I want you to think about that for a second. What's been going on for centuries? A priest takes the blood of a spotless lamb and with a chain wrapped around him goes into the Holy of Holies because if he dies in there, they got to drag him out. He takes the blood of a spotless lamb and he pours it on the Holy of Holies, the actual ark. I mean, he pours it on there and that is the... God let that happen and he would... Passover, they let that work for a little while, and that God would come out. And now Paul is saying that God, now instead of a priest presenting a spotless lamb and his blood going in to God, what's happening in Jesus? God presents Jesus as the mercy seat. Paul is saying that you need to look at the cross of Jesus as the new holy of holies. It's the cross and the blood of Jesus on the cross that is a once and for all atonement. No more priest having to sacrifice a lamb and go in there and hope that he doesn't die and screw this up in the holy of holies and hoping that God's going to 
look over their sin because of this one act of ritual that we're doing. No, that whole act of ritual has been fulfilled in the person of Jesus. He actually, the cross is the holy of holies, and he is the mercy. He is the one that's atoned for your sin. That's how it works. The whole sacrificial system was spotless animal to cover our sin for a year. For a year. God himself offers his only son as the perfect sacrifice to atone for our sin for eternity. And it didn't happen behind a veil in the Holy of Holies, but on a cross in full public display. Because it's, it's for all who would believe. It's for all who would believe. So why? Why would the Lord do this? <laughs> Paul doesn't give every answer, but the answer he does give is really important. The fourth thing I want you to know about the cross of Jesus is why God did it. Look at verse 25b and 26. Okay, So 25, God presented him as the mercy seat by his blood through faith. Why? To demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and justify the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, look, break this down. This is, this is mind-blowing. The reason God did this is so that you would see how amazing he is. That you could actually enjoy him that you could actually be in a relationship. And he demonstrated his righteousness. He demonstrated his putting the effect of his righteousness on you. He did that so that you could see him, so that you could know him, so that you could enjoy him, so that you could be with him, and that he would get all of the glory for having done it out of love and compassion for his people. Follow the text because... To demonstrate his righteousness, why? Because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. There's a lot of sins previously committed. Centuries upon centuries upon centuries of people groups. Even the Jews going through Leviticus 16 on an annual basis. The sins weren't actually being atoned for. It was all a demonstration. It was all a presentation. It was all a projection. The law and the prophets attest to, Paul says, the work of Jesus on the cross. And so the, one of the reasons it happened in this moment when it happened is because in his restraint, God had passed over. And God was done passing over. He had to show himself just and the sins of all the past of all the centuries, were laid on the person of Jesus in that moment. Verse 26, God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time. Why? Look at this. So that he would be just and justify the one who has faith in Jesus. So this is a really, really, really important thing you need to understand about what took place at the cross. In that moment, Two things that you didn't think could possibly come together came together. And this is why it's so true and why it's such a crucial message to this world. In the death of Jesus on the cross, God showed himself to be just and he showed himself to be gracious. How was he just? Sin, 
got punished perfectly. His wrath was satisfied in the death of his son on the cross. So God showed himself in that moment to be just. And he wants to be known as just. It's a part of his character to know that he is just. He is a holy God and he will not allow sin to go unpunished. And it's not. It was punished in the person of Jesus who lived the life that you and I could not live. So he was made just. He was shown to be just. But then Paul says that he would be just and what? Justify the one who has faith. So he didn't just do it to punish the sin. He did it to liberate and declare not guilty those who would believe in the act of justice that he did in the person of his son. He did it to be known. He did it for the gospel to be real. He did it for it to be real and in history and to be believable. He did it for you and I to understand and grasp just how amazing he is. That's why he did it. Do you know him as the one who is just and is the one who is the justifier? Where sin was actually punished and by doing so, he made access to God available to anybody who would believe and trust. That's why he died on the cross. That's why Matthew 27 happened. So that he could be known as the just and the one who justifies. So what? So I'm going to give you two things, okay? Number one, I I want to implore you to live a but now life. Okay? Faith in the most pivotal moment of all of history inevitably results in a complete pivot in how we live our life in this faith. The biggest but now action in all of history requires constant but now living. What benefit did you reap at the time from the things you were now ashamed of, Paul says in Romans 6. Those things result in death, but now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness and that result is eternal life. Romans 7, For when we were controlled by the sinful nature, the sinful compassions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies and we bore fruit for death. But now, dying to what was bound to us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, not in the old way of the written code. Galatians 4, formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you're turning back to those weak and miserable practices? Don't be enslaved by them all over again. Ephesians 2, therefore remember that formerly you were Gentiles by birth and uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision. Remember that at a time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and you were foreigners to the covenant of the promise without hope and without God. But now, in Christ, you who runs far away have been brought near to the blood by the blood of Christ. Ephesians 5, for once you were darkness, but now 
You were light of the world. Live as children of the light. Once, Colossians 1, you were alienated from God. You were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through the cross, through death, to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Colossians 3, you used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. But now you must rid yourselves of all such things, anger, rage, malice, slander, language. You get the point. If the cross happened, and if her faith is in the work of Jesus on the cross, we have to live a but now life. And when we do, boast in the Lord. Boast in the Lord. There is no believing in the life and death of Jesus and taking credit for how well you're pulling that life off. The moment you get to that place like, hey, I'm kind of crushing it over here in my spiritual life, you're not. In fact, you've probably not been for some time. And this is the red, this is the canary in the coal mine, if you will. Okay. Boast in the Lord. Boast in the Lord. He did it. And the Spirit is at work in your life. The more you, the more you, um, contemplate the holiness of God and the depth of your sin and just how much you need the grace of the gospel in Jesus, you will boast in Jesus, not in yourself. So live a but now life and boast in the Lord. Let me pray for you. Father, I want to first thank you for the example of this church and the means by which uh, my family has been blessed by their proclamation and demonstration of the gospel. They have consistently, not because they are awesome, but because they see you are awesome and you are making them awesome. They have consistently, by the grace of God and a focus, a focused gratitude and worship of you for the gospel. They have demonstrated it and proclaimed it into my heart, into the heart of my children, and the heart of my wife over and over and over again. And I am so grateful that you called us to be a part of this church family. And I'm so grateful for the lessons learned and for the relationships that have been forged. And I pray for them that they will continue in what you have called them to that they will continue to proclaim, believe, and trust, place their faith and hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ, in the work on the cross, and that they will proclaim it and demonstrate it in their lives, boasting in you as they live a but now life. Father, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.